Section 16 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Louis Fifteenth, Part 1. A.D. 1710-1774. Remote Causes of Revolution. It is impossible to contemplate the inglorious reign of Louis XV otherwise than as a more complete development of the egotism which marked the life of his immediate predecessor, and a still more fruitful nursery of those vices and discontents which prepared the way for the French Revolution. It is in fact in connection with that great event that this reign should be considered. The fabric of despotism had already been built by Richelieu, and Louis the Fourteenth had displayed and gloried in its dazzling magnificence, even while he undermined its foundations by his ruinous wars and courtly extravagance. Under Louis the Fifteenth, we shall see even greater recklessness in profitless expenditures, and more complete abandonment to the pleasures which were purchased by the burdens and sorrows of his people we shall see the monarch and his court still more subversive of the prosperity and dignity of the nation and even indifferent to the signs of that coming storm which later overturned the throne of his grandson louis the sixteenth and louis the fifteenth was not only the author of new calamities but the heir of seventy years misrule all the evils which resulted from the wars and wasteful extravagance of louis the fourteenth became additional perplexities with which he had to contend but these evils, instead of removing, he only aggravated by follies which surpassed all the excesses of the preceding reign. If I were asked to point out the most efficient, though indirect, authors of the French Revolution, I would single out those royal tyrants themselves who sat upon the throne of Henry the Fourth during the 17th and 18th centuries. I shall proceed to state the principal events and features which have rendered that reign both noted and ignominious. In contemplating the long reign of Louis XV, whom I present as a necessary link in the political history of the 18th century, rather than as one of the beacon lights of civilization, we first naturally turn our eyes to the leading external events by which it is marked in history. And we have to observe, in reference to these, that they were generally unpropitious to the greatness and glory of France. Nearly all those which emanated from the government had an unfortunate or disgraceful issue. No success attended the French arms in any quarter of the world, with the exception of the victories of Marshal Saxe at Fontenoy, 1745. And the French lost the reputation they had previously acquired under Henry IV, Condé, Turenne, and Luxembourg. Disgrace attended the generals who were sent against Frederick II in the Seven Years' War, even greater than what had previously resulted from the contest with the English and the Dutch, and which were brought to a close by the Peace of A la Chapelle in 1748. But it was not on the fields of Germany that the greatest disasters happened. The French were rifled of their possessions, both in America and in India. Louisbourg yielded to the bravery of New England troops, and finally Canada itself was lost. All dreams of establishing a new empire on the Mississippi and the Gulf of St. Lawrence vanished forever, while Madras and Calcutta fell into the hands of the English, with all the riches of the Mahatmian and Mughal empires. During the regency of the Duke of Orleans, for Louis XV was an infant five years of age when his great-grandfather died in 1715, we noticed the disgraceful speculations which followed the schemes of law, and which resulted in the ruin of thousands, and the still greater derangement of the national finances. 
The most respectable part of the reign of Louis XV were those seventeen years when the administration was in the hands of Cardinal Fleury, who succeeded the Duke of Bourbon, to whom the reins of government had been entrusted after the death of the Duke of Orleans, two years before the young king had attained his majority. Though the cardinal was a man of peace, was irreproachable in morals, patriotic in his intentions, and succeeded in restoring for a time the credit of the country, still even he only warded off difficulties, like Sir Robert Walpole, instead of bravely meeting them before it should be too late. His timid rule was a negative rather than a positive blessing, but with his death ended all prosperity, and the reign of mistresses and infamous favorites began. The great feature of the times, on which I shall presently speak more fully, as one of the indirect causes of subsequent revolution. Singling out and generalizing the evils and public misfortunes of the reign of Louis XV, perhaps the derangement of the finances was the most important in its political results. But for this misfortune the king was not wholly responsible. A vast national debt was the legacy of Louis XIV. This was the fruit of his miserable attempt at self-aggrandizement. This was the residuum of his glories. Yet as a national debt, according to some, is no calamity, but rather a blessing, a chain of loyalty and love to bind the people together in harmonious action and mutual interest, and especially the middle classes, upon whom it chiefly falls, to the support of a glorious throne. We must not waste time by dwelling on the existence of this debt, a peculiarity which has attended the highest triumphs of civilization, an invention of honored statesmen and patriotic ministers, and perhaps their benignant boon to future generations. But rather we will look to the way it was sought to be discharged. Louis the Fourteenth spent in wars fifteen hundred millions of livres, and in palaces about three hundred millions more, and his various other expenses, which could not be well defrayed by taxation, swelled the amount due to his creditors, at his death to nearly two thousand millions, a vast sum for those times. The regent, Duke of Orleans, who succeeded him, increased this debt still more, especially by his reckless and infamous prodigalities, under the direction of his prime minister, his old friend and tutor, Cardinal Dubois. At last his embarrassments were so great that the wheels of government were likely to stop. His friend, the Duc de Saint-Simon, one of the great patricians of the court, proposed as a remedy national bankruptcy affirming that it would be a salutary lesson to the rich plebeian capitalists not to lend their money. An ingenious Scottish financier, however, proposed a more palatable scheme, which was to make use of the credit of the nation for a bank, the capital of which should be guaranteed by shares in the Mississippi Company. John Law, already a wealthy and prosperous banker, proposed to increase the paper currency and supersede the use of gold and silver. His offer was accepted, and his bank became a royal one, its bills going at once into circulation. Now, as the most absurd delusions existed as to the wealth of Louisiana, and the most boundless faith was placed in Law's financiering, and as only Law's bills could purchase shares in the company which was to make everybody's fortune, gold and silver flowed to his bank. The shares of the company continued to rise in value, and bank bills were indefinitely issued. In a little while, 1719, 640 millions of livres in these bills were in circulation, and soon after, nearly half of the national debt was paid off. In other words, people had been induced to exchange government securities to the amount of 800 millions for the Mississippi stock. They sold consoles at Law's Bank and were paid in his bills, with which they bought shares. 
the bills of the bank were of course redeemable in gold and silver but for a time nobody wanted gold and silver so great was the credit of the bank moreover the bank itself was guaranteed by the shares of the company which were worth at one period twelve times their original value john law of course was regarded as a national benefactor his financiering had saved a nation and who had ever before heard of a nation being saved by stock jobbing all sorts of homage and honors were showered upon so great a man his house was thronged with dukes and peers he became controller general of the finances and virtually prime minister he was elected a member of the french academy his fame extended far and wide for he was a beneficent deity that had made everybody rich and no one poor surely the golden age had come Paris was crowded with strangers from all parts of the world who came to see a man whose wisdom surpassed that of Solomon, and who made silver and gold to be as stones in the streets. As everybody had grown rich, twelve hundred new coaches were set up, nothing was seen but new furniture and costly apparel, nothing was felt but universal exhilaration. So great was the delusion that the stock of the Mississippi Company reached the almost fabulous amount of three thousand six hundred millions nearly twice the amount of the national debt. But as Law's Bank, where all these transactions were made, revealed none of its transactions, the public were in ignorance of the bills issued and stock created. At last, the Prince of Conti, one of the most powerful of the nobles and a prince of the blood royal, who had received enormous amounts in bills as the price of his protection, annoyed to find that his ever-increasing demands were finally resisted, presented his notes at the bank, and of course obtained gold and silver then other nobles did the same and then foreign merchants until the bank was drained then came the panic then the fall of stocks then general ruin then universal despondency and rage the bubble had burst four hundred thousand families who thought themselves rich and who had been comfortable were hopelessly ruined but the state had got rid of half the national debt and for a time was clear of embarrassment the people, however, had been defrauded and deceived by government, and they rendered in return their secret curses. The foundations of a throne are only secured by the affections of a people. If these are destroyed, one great element of regal power is lost. Under the administration of Cardinal Fleury, 1726-1743, the finances were somewhat improved since he aimed at economical arrangements, especially in the collection of taxes. He attempted to imitate Sully and Colbert, but without their genius and boldness, he effected but little. He had an unfortunate quarrel with the Parliament of Paris, and was obliged to repeal a favorite measure. After his death, the country was virtually ruled by the king's mistress, Madame de Pompadour, who displaced ministers at her pleasure, and who encouraged unbounded extravagance. The public deficit increased continually, until it finally amounted to nearly two hundred millions in a single year. In spite of this increasing derangement of the finances, the court had not the courage or will to face the difficulties, but resorted to new loans and forced contributions, and every form of iniquitous taxation. If a great functionary announced the necessity of economy or order, he was forthwith disgraced. Nothing irritated the court more than any proposal to reduce unnecessary expenses, nor would any other order either the nobles or the clergy, consent to make sacrifices. In such a state of things, a most oppressive system of taxation was the necessary result. In no country in modern times have the burdens of the people been so great. 
taxes were imposed to the utmost extent that they were able to bear without their consent, and upon the slightest resistance or remonstrance they were imprisoned and treated as criminals. So great were the taxes on land that nearly two-thirds of the whole gross produce, it has been estimated, went to the state, and three-quarters of the remainder to the landlord. The peasant thus only received about one-twelfth of the fruit of his labors, and on this pittance his family was supported. Taxes were both direct and indirect, levied upon every article of consumption, upon everything that was imported or exported, upon income, upon capital, upon the transmission of property, upon even the few privileges which were enjoyed. But not one half that was collected went to the royal treasury. It was wasted by the different collectors and sub-collectors. In addition to the ordinary burdens were enormous monopolies, granted to nobles and courtiers, by which the income of the state was indirectly plundered. The poor man groaned amid his heavy labors and great privations, without exciting compassion or securing redress. And in addition to his taxes, the laborer was deprived of all the privileges of freedom. He was injured, downtrodden, mocked, and insulted. The laws were unequal and gave him no security. Game of the most destructive kind was permitted to run at large through the fields, and yet people were not allowed to shoot a hare or deer upon their own grounds. Numerous edicts prohibited hoeing and weeding lest young partridges should be destroyed. The people were bound to repair the roads without compensation, to grind their corn at the landlord's mill, bake their bread in his ovens, and carry their grapes to his wine-press. They had not the benefit of schools or of institutions which would enable them to improve their minds. They could not rise above the miserable condition in which they were born, or even make their complaints heard. Feudalism, in all its social distinctions and in all its oppressive burdens, crushed them as with an iron weight, or bound them as with iron fetters. This weight they could not throw off. These fetters they could not break. There was no alternative but in submission, forced submission to overwhelming taxes, robberies, insults, and injustice, both from landed proprietors and the officers of the crown. Those, however, who lived upon the unrequited toil of the people lived out of sight of their sorrows, not in beautiful chateaus as their ancestors did, by the side of placid rivers and on the skirts of romantic forests, or amid vineyards and olive groves, but in the capital or the court. Here, like Roman senators of old, they squandered the money which they had obtained by extortion and corruption of every sort. Amid the palaces of Versailles they displayed all the vanities of dress, all the luxuries of their favored life. Here, as lesser stars, they revolved around the great central orb of regal splendor, proud to belong to another world than that in which the plebeian millions toiled and suffered. At Versailles they attempted to ignore their own humanity, to forget their most pressing duties, and to despise the only pursuits which could have elevated their minds or warmed their hearts. But they were not great feudal nobles like the Guises and the Epernons, such as combined to awe even regal powder under the house of Valois, men who could coin money and exercise judicial authority in their own domain, but timid and subservient courtiers, as embarrassed in their affairs as was the king himself. Nevertheless, many of the ancient privileges of feudalism were enjoyed by them. They were exempt from many taxes which oppressed merchants and farmers. They alone were appointed to command in the army and navy. They alone were made prelates and dignitaries in the church. They were comparatively free from arrest when their crimes were against society and God rather than the government. 
they were distinguished from the plebeian class by dress as well as by privileges and they only had access to court and a share in the plunder of the kingdom craving greater excitements than that which even versailles afforded they built in the faubourg saint germain those magnificent hotels which are still the dreary but imposing monuments of aristocratic pride and here they plunged into every form of excess and folly for which paris has always been distinguished but it was in their splendid equipages and in their boxes in the opera that they displayed the most striking contrast to the habits of the plebeian people with whom they were surrounded their embroidered vests their costly silks and satins their emerald and diamond buckles their point lace ruffles their rare furs their jeweled rapiers and their perfumed handkerchiefs were peculiar to themselves for in those days wealthy shopkeepers and even the daughters of prosperous notaries could ill afford such luxuries and were scarcely allowed to shine in them if they would a velvet coat then cost more than one thousand francs while the ruffs and frills and diamond studs and knee buckles and other appendages to the dress of a gentleman swelled the amount to scarcely less than forty thousand francs or sixteen hundred louis d'or if a distinguished advocate was admitted to the presence of royalty he must appear in simple black gorgeous dresses were reserved only for the noblesse some one hundred fifty thousand privileged persons all the rest were roturiers marked by some emblem of meanness or inferiority whatever might be their intellectual and moral worth never were the noblesse more enervated and yet they always appeared in a mock heroic costume with swords dangling at their sides or hats cocked after a military fashion on their heads as the strength of samson of old was in his locks so the degenerate nobles of this period guarded with especial care these masculine ornaments of the person and so great was the contagion for wigs and hair powder that twelve hundred shops existed in paris to furnish this aristocratic luxury the muses of rome in the days of her decline condescended to sing on the arts of cookery and the sublime occupations of hunting and fishing so in the heroic times of louis the fifteenth the genius of france soared to comprehend the mysteries of the toilette one eminent savant in this department of philosophical wisdom absolutely published a bulky volume on the principles of hair-dressing and followed it so highly was it prized by a no less ponderous supplement this was the time when the cuisine of nobles was as famous as their toilettes and when recipes for different dishes were only equaled in variety by the epigrams of ribald poets it was a period not merely of degrading follies but of shameless exposure of them when men boasted of their gallantries and women joked at their own infirmities and when hypocrisy if it was ever added to their other vices only served to make them more ridiculous and unnatural the rouge with which they painted their faces and the powder which they sprinkled upon their hair were not used to give them a semblance of youthful beauty but rather to impart the purple hues of perpetual drunkenness such as rubens gave to his bacchanalian deities united with the blanched whiteness of premature old age licentiousness without shame drunkenness without rebuke gambling without honor and frivolity without wit characterized alas a great proportion of that upper class who disdained the occupations and sneered at the virtues of industrial life but these dissipated courtiers had a model constantly before their eyes whose more excessive follies it were difficult to rival and this was the king himself whom the whole nation was called upon to obey if louis the fourteenth was a nebuchadnezzar unapproachable from pride 
Louis the Fifteenth was a Sardanapalus in effeminacy and insouciant revelries. The shameless infamies of his life were too revolting to bear more than a passing allusion, and I should blush to tear away the historic veil which covers up his vices from the common eye. I shrink from showing to what depths humanity can sink, even when clothed in imperial purple and seated on the throne of state. The countless memoirs of that wicked age have, however, exposed the indignant eye of posterity, the regal debaucheries of Versailles, and the pollutions of the Pare Surfs, that infamous seraglio which cost the state one hundred millions of livres at the lowest estimate. And this was but a part of the great system of waste and folly. Five hundred millions of the national debt were incurred for expenses too ignominious to even be named. The king, however, was not fond of pomp. It was fatiguing for him to bear, and he generally shut himself from the sight and intercourse of any but convivial friends. No, not friends, for to absolute monarchs the pleasures of friendship are denied. I should have said the panderers to his degrading pleasures. Never did the papal court at Avignon or Rome, even in the worst ages of medieval darkness, witness more scandalous enormities than those which disgraced the whole reign of Louis the Fifteenth either in the days of his minority, when the kingdom was governed by the Duke of Orleans, or in his latter years, when the Duke of Choiseul was the responsible adviser of the crown. The Palais Royal, the Palais Luxembourg, the Trianon, and Versailles were alternately scenes of excesses which would have disgraced the reigns of the most degenerate of Saracenic caliphs. So vile was the court that a celebrated countess one day said at a public festival that God after having formed man, took the mud which was left and made the souls of princes and footmen. And the king hated business as much as he hated pomp. Unlike his predecessor, he left everything in the hands of his servants. Nothing wearied him so much as an interview with a minister or a dispatch from a general. In the society of his mistresses he abnegated his duties as a monarch, and the labors of his life were employed in gratifying their resentments and humoring their caprices. Their complaints were more potent than the suggestions of ministers or the remonstrances of judges. In idle frivolities his time was passed, neglectful of the great interests which were entrusted to him to guard, and the only attainment of which he was proud was a knack of making tarts and bonbons with which he frequently regaled his visitors. And yet, in spite of these ignoble tastes and pursuits, the king was by no means deficient in natural abilities. He was much superior to even Louis the Fourteenth in logical acumen and sprightly wit. He was an agreeable companion and could appreciate every variety of talents. No man in his court perceived more clearly than he the tendency of the writings of philosophers which were then fermenting the germs of revolution. His sagacity kept him from believing in Voltaire, even when he succeeded in deceiving the King of Prussia. He was favorable to the Jesuits, though he banished them from the realm perceiving and feeling that they were his true friends and the best supports of his absolute throne. And yet he banished them from his kingdom. He was hostile, too, in his heart to the very philosophers whom he invited to his table, and knew that they sought to undermine his power. He simply had not the moral energy to carry out the plans of that despotism to which he was devoted. Sensuality ever robs a man of the advantages and gifts which reason gives, even though they may be bestowed to an extraordinary degree." There is no more impotent slavery than that to which the most gifted intellects have been occasionally doomed. Self-indulgence is sure to sap every element of moral strength, and to take away from genius itself all power, except to sharpen the strings of self-reproach. 
Louis the Fifteenth was not insensible to the dangers which menaced his throne, and would have despoiled the Parliament of the right remonstrance, would have imposed on the Jansenists the yoke of papal supremacy, would have burned the books of the philosophers, and have sent their authors to work out their system within the gloomy dungeons of the Bastille. But he had not the courage, nor the moral strength, nor the power of will. He was enslaved by his vices and by those who pandered to them, and he could not act either the king or the man. Seeing the dangers, but feeling his impotence, he affected levity, and exclaimed to his courtiers, Après nous les déluges, a prediction which only uncommon sagacity could have prompted. Immersed, however, in unworthy pleasures, he gave himself not much concern for the future, and this career of self-abandonment continued to the last, even after satiety and ennui had deprived the appetites of the power to please. His latter days were of course melancholy, and his miseries resulted as much from the perception of the evils to come as from the failure of the pleasures of sense. A languor from which he was, with difficulty ever roused, oppressed his life. Deaf, incapable of being amused, prematurely worn out with bodily infirmities, hated and despised by the whole nation, he dragged out his sixty-fourth year and died of smallpox, which he caught in one of his visits to the Pareil aux Cerfs and his loathsome remains were hastily returned in a carriage and deposited in the vaults of St. Denis. End of section 16